welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Mark McGuire with us here today. Mark, I appreciate your time. Uh, to uh, So everybody can follow along and see what you and your team are up to. I'm going to head, head send them over to your website. So head over to hfirecapital.com. And if you do a Google search, this stands for hearthfirecapital.com. So I appreciate it, Mark. And we're going to be talking about quite a bit of stuff because everything from you starting in a music career, getting into real estate, then real estate investing, but now you're talking about syndications and storage units and, and everything under the sun. So I appreciate your time here today. I'm excited to be here, Jack. Pumped. So, well, I, I, I just because I'm a bit of a nerd, a, a bit of a music nerd, you probably see some of the headphones in the background. Um, I have to ask, like, music career, wh- what was the story there? Because I even know that you signed a contract even at one point. Yeah. So uh, the story there was I played drums in school as a kid and then went from playing drums to, you know, playing in jazz band. It went from, you know, just, you know, traditional concert orchestral bands to then jazz band. I enjoyed playing drum set, took lessons there and kind of met one of the guys that was in the band at the school. And he was, he was playing a show at a local university, Temple University at the time. He's like, hey, uh, do you want to come and play drums for this show? Uh, we need a drummer. And it kind of evolved from there. And I was like a junior in high school or so. And, um, you know, we just c- kept playing. And I thought they had some talent. I thought he had a, you know, a, a, an eye, an ear, if you will, for songwriting and, and melody. And, um, you know, from there, we just kept playing, kept gigging, lost a lot of money made signed a lot of bad contracts and you know got in with the wrong people got in with some of the right people and ended up um, getting a contract from rca records yeah and then you said it was a bad contract so one thing leads to another and you try to find another career path yeah you know it was one of those things where you start kind of tallying up the math and when you really look into that it was like man we have no rights no power no authority we are owned and, um, you know, you look at so many of the artists today, you know, Taylor Swift just recorded all of her own re-recorded all of her hit albums because she now owns the masters and the masters are actually where all of the, the money and the residuals are, are, are made. And as an artist, when you don't own the master, you pay the record label vintage of every stream and every single sale for in perpetuity. So that's why, you know, the music industry, you, most people don't have money. And they need the record label to front them. And it's kind of like venture capital. It was like the, you know, the original tech investors, only they're investing in performing artists. Sure. Well, it's kind of like even today, you know, a lot of us are tied to a nine to five job and uh, we see it, perceive it as security. And uh, we think we, we see it as the easiest path to, to some sort of freedom. But in the end, uh, we're kind of, we're kind of tied to, the the whims of that business and 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 they're the economy a hundred percent and i mean 
and then that's what I kind of came to realize. It just, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the path for me. I mean, it was great. Learned a ton of lessons in just life and business. I mean, you know, it was my first business I ever had ownership in and I learned how to not do books and I learned how to not do taxes and I learned how to, you know, not run a business, which was spend more than you earn and then put more money in and then spend all that money and then don't keep good books. So tax season was hellish every single year. So it was great in terms of learning. I mean, it was difficult, but it was, I don't take it back. I'm glad that it happened. Sure. Well, what's some, what are some of the lessons that you learned from that experience that you've been able to apply to the real estate world? Well, one thing with respect to you know music and and honestly you, you go back to school right you know you had teachers that would check on you to make sure you did your homework well at a certain point in time no one's checking on you to make sure you did your homework your performance will indicate if you did your homework and you know when i was playing in the band you either got up on stage and nailed your performance and you were tight and you played well or you showed how much you did not practice and everybody knew it and not only did you get to know it and feel bad about it, but everybody else got to watch you and you only got one reputation. So learned a lot about discipline and, you know, just the the work ethic that it takes to be truly successful. I mean, getting signed, whether you make it, so to speak, and you get a song on hit radio that actually gets you paid. Just getting signed is, I mean, I don't know what the percentages are, but it's one in a lot. And it takes a, a very serious work ethic and a consistent work ethic. You can't just sprint and get that type of success. I mean, that is, it's a, you know, showing up on a daily, weekly basis for years. And that's how you reach the level that you need to, to get to in order to have that type of a career. So it was all about consistency. It was all about really understanding that you have to be 100% accountable for your success. And you have to be 100% accountable for, you know, your outcomes and you have to accept the good and the bad. Right. I I would imagine that with that type of mentality though, once you made the decision to get into real estate, you probably started to put in a, a equivalent amount of time or effort. And that just eventually what led you to run ragged and have to build a team. Yeah. So it's interesting when it, you're exactly right. I took the, the work ethic and the discipline and and the business principles from that experience and just pivoted and just said okay new i'm going to attack a new business vertical which instead of it being music it became real estate and it was residential real estate sales at the time and it, it was really strange when i got paid within like 4 months it was like this really new thing where my bank account grew instead of shrunk and it was a great concept. I was good with it. But uh, it, w- it was not really doing anything different. Like I approached it the exact same way. And, and a lot of people in the residential real estate sales world are impatient or they don't know what work ethic and consistency looks like. So for me, all the pain, hardship, frustration, you know, and, and the deferred gratification that I had, all of that went, went up. I pivoted those focus, that focus and those efforts in real estate. It just, it was just like a rocket ship. It just took off. So at what point in your real estate journey did you decide that uh, this this wasn't working and I, I can't put in this amount of hours and I had to build a team? So I was about uh, two and a half, maybe three years in, and I started to think to myself, 
I want to have something that, you know, when I decide that I don't want to sell real estate anymore, I don't want to just close my doors and say, hey, yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. I wanted to have something that I could transition and that I could sell. Um, that was the whole point of building the team because, you know, I wanted to build something that was worth something. It wasn't just me chasing commission dollars. And then every year on January 1st, I started over to chase commission dollars from zero again. And that was the point at which I wanted to build a business. And then it was like, okay, I need to hire certain people in certain roles. And you have to hire them in a certain order because if you don't, you get out of balance. And that was about the time when I realized, wow, that like that there's systems and there's processes that you have to now define and then teach because people can't read your mind. Well, so you you started off being a realtor. At what point did you decide that uh, maybe I should be buying some of these properties as rentals or I would imagine that's probably where you started, right? Like maybe single family home rentals? Yeah, single family was where I started. That's correct. Ironically, I bought before I actually sold any real real estate. I um, was fortunate enough to you know work some relationships in the private debt side. Also, when I was buying, where it was 2013, right? So everything was on sale. You know, the overpriced properties were still a steal. So I was different in that I was the one buying it before I was selling it hmm. because I saw the value in it. So for me, it was a really easy sale. I could speak to the value. It was real easy. And I put my money where my mouth was before I had any, you know, I would say upside on, on, on the back end with the sale. Does that make sense? Yep. No, it makes perfect sense. So as you're building the team, can you give, based on your experience now, what are some of those most important things that people probably need to really understand on how to hire the right people or add the right people to the team? So a couple of things. Number one, when you hire somebody, it's going to take about six months for them to really actually get to a place where they're useful to you. They talk about it in being 90 days. And you know, for an absolute rock star hire, that could be true. The challenges with rock stars is that if you don't have enough opportunity for them, they're going to leave you. So rock stars are good when presented with the right opportunity, but they're also bad in that if there's not enough opportunity, they'll go create more elsewhere. So you got to be patient and understand that this new hire is going to be a drag before they are actually of benefit. And it's going to take a lot more to ramp them up, especially the first time you hire for that position. And you're going to hire that position wrong. You're not going to know what you're looking for. There's going to be parts in your hiring process that aren't going to be well sussed out. And you're going to find yourself in a place where you are making a bad hire. And they always say, uh, slow to hire, quick to fire. That's the truth. And most people are, you know, they hire in a more reactive way because they're like, man, I'm drowning over here. I need air. And they think, okay, I'm going to hire somebody. And then they're going to throw a book of responsibility at them and assume that they're going to catch it, open it up and say, yeah, not a problem. Page one, let me go. Mm -hmm. Well, you just said that it could take as much as six months to get somebody ramped up. Yeah. What are some of those early signs that a person should be aware of then that you you identify this could possibly not this isn't the right fit and you should be quick to fire. So we put a probationary period with every hire that we do. Once again, slow to fire, slow to hire, quick to fire. So 
we have a 90-day probationary period that gives us the ability to see, are they showing up after they showed up? There's a lot of people who will talk a good game, and you can fake it for 30 days. You might be able to fake it for 60 days. But in days 61 to 90, the rubber is meeting the road. Are they really a fit? Are they still showing up and doing the work with a smile on their face? Or are, are, are there cracks in the armor? So I would say, you know, give yourself a probationary period where, and it's mutually probational, right? It's, it's not something where it's exclusive to you. Give them the ability to exit just as much as you have the ability to exit. So one of the things that I'm really curious about is that, you know, you, you're got some experience, not only building a team, but kind of building an elite team. We have learned just through corporate statistics it, and I think it surprises a lot of people, and some people might even put it in this concept of the 80-20 rule, but you're going to, more, more times than not, you're going to find that over half of a company's business is done by less than 20% of the people that are working there. In fact, if you look at statistics, it's like less than 5% of the people that work there. I mean, it's really a small number. How do you find the elite amongst uh, the, the group you interview more people like everyone wants a magic bullet i have a team of great people because i've hired more bad people than most people and what happens when you hire bad people is you you usually get your job handed back to you and i think most people just kind of they scratch their heads they're just like i don't understand i hired this person why does it feel like i'm still working equally as much that's a sign that the hire is not a, the right hire or you didn't onboard them and train them correctly to set them up for success. So there's two components to hiring somebody and doing it well. One, you have to find, you have to identify and, and then hire the right hire. But second, you have to onboard them and give them the tools to succeed because sometimes you could have a great fit both culturally and skill-wise, but that person may not be given the training to get ramped up or to become uh, you know, accommodated to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-way street. I mean, not only do you, are you, you know, you have to find the right person with the right skill set and the right attitude and, and, and culture fit, but you got to find, you then have to give them the training and the tools to be able to be successful in the role. You know, I, and, and I hate to simplify this as well though, but you know, I'm going to say I what I'm, I'm victim of, of this as well. I know you need some, you know, at one point I hired somebody to, to help with the real estate investing and, um, you're, you, you start with trying to find a warm body instead of taking a moment and actually writing down and defining what you need help with and defining that role. So you can find that correct puzzle piece. Totally agreed. I think some of my my biggest lessons in hiring people came from those that I hired that were wrong and me reflecting on the pain that I incurred. I, I big proponent of journaling. I don't do, I do it every day. No, but I do it pretty, probably four to five times a week. And I find myself as an avid journaler, especially in failure, because that allows me to kind of do the brain dump of all the pain that I'm encountering or that I'm feeling and it, I extract the best lessons through my mistakes. And I think I, that was advice I'd give anybody. Like if you're trying to do something, put it on paper and then go and then you know modify your process to execute. But at the same time, 
put it on paper when you fail because that's going to help you then tailor your your process the next time to be more successful and even better because you're going to say hey that's a red flag i'm not even going to continue to engage with that person well can you give us an example of a situation where you just didn't hire the right person for the for the right role and and, and man what what I happened lot, i've i have a lot of examples I hired uh, I hired the first assistant I ever hired, an, an executive assistant. I hired somebody to do a lot of the administrative tasks with real estate. And I, she worked with me for 10 months. First assistant I ever hired. I still don't know why she said yes. I was like 26 at the time, paying a 40-some-year-old woman to work for me. It was, it was actually really wild. I didn't really suss out with them their long-term goals. Because if you don't know where they are and where they want to go, even if the, you were to do a great job and and make good on everything you said to them, but you didn't take the time to understand where they wanted to be in a year or in three years or in five years, you may be totally missing the mark, even though in your head, you think you're crushing it. So one of the things I tell people is you know, really get clear on where your employees want to be in their lives. Understand their goals and then figure out how you can get them there within your universe. Mm-hmm. Just to remind everybody, I want to have everybody head over to your website again, hfirecapital.com in order to learn what uh, Mark and his team are working on here next, which does bring me to my next question. You've had quite a few steps in your career, you know, from, from the music industry to a realtor single family home investor, now into syndications. How have you handled and what lessons have you learned as your career has progressed like this? So I've come to appreciate the value of time. When I first got started, you have no money. You don't have any, like, unless you're trading your time for money, you don't have, you don't really have a whole lot of cash. So it was all just hustle and grit and as many hours as you can work was as much money as you could earn. Mm-hmm. And so then it was like, okay, I'm going to buy one asset. I'm going to get a cash flowing and then I'm going to save all that money. I'm going to reinvest it. I've read more books than I wish to admit, thinking that there's some magical formula for building wealth. The, the, the secret is invest, don't take the principal out and then reinvest all the, the, the distributions and dividends. Like that's it. There's the whole secret to wealth building. Any money that you put away to invest, don't take it out to live on until you ha- it, you have it kicking off more than you can actually go and spend. Right. That being said, when I, I learned the value of time, like I, 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 there's only so many hours in a day for me. I can't be in sales and in maintenance and in you know construction and in you know finance. I can't be all of those things. So you had to figure out how do I maximize my time in a in a way that would be the most profitable? How do I maximize my dollar per hour? And so that's where you you can't... It's hard to scale single family homes. Like the infrastructure, your the, the, the people count that you need to have on your team to scale that, it's, it's insane because you have, you know, roof, sewer, heater, air conditioner, washer, dryer, kitchen, bathrooms for every property. Versus in a multifamily property, you got one roof for 10 units. You got one plumbing system for 10 units. So it's less to maintain. We get better economies of scale. That's where 
I ran out of time to find my own deals because at a certain point, there was only so many deals that you could execute in a period of time. And I wanted my money to continue to be accountable for earning as much as it responsibly could when you adjust it for the risk. And so that's where the syndication came in for me. I started to say, hey, I went from single family, bought another single family, bought a quadplex. And then I was like, man, I have so much responsibility in my on my day-to-day basis. Plus, I have all these rentals. I can't take that many more rentals on. And I wasn't ready to pay a property manager yet because a lot of our stuff just wasn't crazy. But when it hit, it seemed to all hit at once. Yeah. So that led you to multifamily and then now storage units, right? Yeah. So I started participating in syndications. I was introduced to the concept in 2017. And and I, I feel like most people, I didn't really believe it. Podcasts were just really to kind of starting to catch on. So the bigger pockets thing was building. Now, you know, every I, I everybody who listens to podcasts knows what syndications are. 2015, 16, 17, syndications was like it was like the dark web. Nobody knew. And I, I realized once I started to 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 work within them that you know there was a lot of opportunity there, and I liked the ability that I got a great return on my time. That's what I really appreciated about it because I could write a check and then go back to doing what I need to do on a daily basis to earn more cash. But it was giving my money the ability to work for me without me having to be the one working all of it all the time. Sure. So this almost sounds like a natural progression then, you know, you went from the single family homes and multifamily and now the storage units. Are you creating your own syndication syndications or are you, are you um, looking for syndications doing the due diligence on syndications? Yeah. So we sponsor our own syndication opportunities. Um, We are not the fund of funds model. What we do, we go and we hunt for the opportunities. And, you know, in the self storage space, we've traditionally acquired existing cash flowing facilities that presented expansion opportunities in markets that there was sufficient demand to execute the expansion. So, now you know we're we're looking. I mean, the economic climate is tumultuous at the current moment in time. I would say <laughs> that's that's a kind way way of saying it. Yeah. So I mean, you got debt markets that are all over the place, and you got you know the stock markets. I, I don't know how you know what the heck it's at, but I know it's been hammered, and crypto has been hammered, and everyone thought that was the truth to the promised land, and so everything's in turmoil. But real estate now, there's. A, a, a fundamental agreement on cap rates and where they currently sit because with when debt ticks up and costs more, usually cap rates expand alongside that because as debt costs more, people can't afford to pay as much because you can't cover the, the, the debt unless you pay less and you borrow less. Mm-hmm. So right now, it, the, the challenge is trying to find opportunities where sellers are realistic. There's like a gap between expectations of sellers and the reality of the market dynamics, which is debt and you know pricing. Yeah. So what was the uh, progress here now? Are you focused mostly on self-storage units? You just still do multifamily? And, and if you do just storage units, was it just because of the simplification of the simplification of the model that attracted you to that? So I we only syndicate self storage. That's all we syndicate. The I mean I'm a partner in 
13 syndications now. I and it's multifamily hospitality industrial self storage and then I'm invested in some some businesses as well. But self storage what I really love about self storage is it's kind of like the the halfway house for multifamily investors. It's like people, you know, you're sick of pulling your hair out trying to go and you know fight for diminishing returns in an oversaturated market. And and self storage presents some, I'm going to say barriers to entry with respect to the capital that's required because your leverage position is lower. Traditionally, self-storage is going to lever at 65 to 70%, whereas multifamily will go 75 to 80. And your amortization is 25 years. So you have a lot more internal rate of return with self-storage than you do cash flow like you would in multifamily on a 30-year amortizing loan. There's also an operational barrier to entry with self-storage. And that operational barrier to entry is running the day-to-day operations because you have a much larger tenant base paying you smaller sums of dollars. So there's more to track and manage um, in the beginning. But once you get it systematized with your revenue management uh, program, and it, you know it kind of it starts to run itself, but there's a lot that you need to do to set it up for it to be able to run itself. So between that component, because you have real estate and a business, an operating business on the site, versus just having real estate and you know monthly payments that are locked in usually for year terms it's a it's more of an on hands-on uh, boots on the ground business where it's more day-to-day does that make sense yeah there's a, a quite a bit more of a business aspect to this and that probably explains why you also like to invest in actual businesses yeah I mean I enjoy business is a game of how do you how do you drive more revenue and with less cost? Like that's the whole game of business. And and then from there, what businesses pay the best multiples? Hmm. And that's the one thing that, you know, when I was building my residential real estate team, I didn't know at the time. I was 26 when I started doing that. The concept of EBITDA, which is, you know, basically a multiple of the 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 earnings of your business mm-hmm. you want to find a business that pays a high multiple on EBITDA so when they people talk about and EBITDA is earnings before interest taxes deductions and amortization so that's your and, and in real estate EBITDA is the, the the real estate equivalent is net operating income or NOI and when you're looking at businesses it's like how do you find what businesses will pay a seven or a 10 times EBITDA instead of residential real estate sales team that's going to pay like one. Because mm-hmm. you could be a slave to that business that you're trying to build, but then when you go to exit it, it's not that, it's not like you have some big exit. It's You're, you're not paying a high multiple on earnings. So the only thing you can do is really juice your earnings. That's how you make that business worth more. You want to find a business that has a higher multiple that requires a, a lower earnings amount to cash out the value of your business. Sure. So, well, if you don't mind me asking, how are you sourcing the storage units you're syndicating? Yeah. So we have a multi-pronged approach. Um, we have a couple of different partners. I mean, self-storage has traditionally been sourced by brokers, actually. They're, one thing that I didn't realize coming from the multifamily space is how much of the inventory is controlled by a very select few of the brokerage groups. I mean, 
there's probably five or six brokerage groups that do almost all of the brokerage in the entire country. Versus multifamily, there's five or six in your township, let alone your county, let alone your you know region. Mm-hmm. Multifamily just has a lot more brokerage contacts because there's there's just more supply of that asset class than there is in self storage. So right. brokerage has been the tried and true. Um, you know, our, what we're also doing is off market direct to seller outreach, and and that has varying success rates depending upon the facility type and size, d- depending upon the complexity of the ownership group. Some may be open to it. Others will say, hey, I want to maximize sale volume and I'm only going out to market through a broker. Like, great that you want to offer me this, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. That being said, we also look at development. Um, and that's you know one of the newer aspects of what we're up to now is looking at development uh, because right now the cost to acquire existing square footage is getting to the point where it doesn't make sense to buy. It's getting to the point where you're actually better to build than you are to buy, but then you got to change up where you're looking because you have to have certain market dynamics to support the rent per square foot needed to justify the construction. And I'm sure that has to do with the population in that area and how um, do you find like certain parts of like a city are better than others? Yeah. So, you know, it really kind of comes down to a couple of things. We always look at, we look at median income as one. I mean, we don't want to, in, in a traditional existing criteria, we'd be looking at median income of 55 to 60,000 minimum in an area where we're going to acquire. Uh, we also be, we also want certain traffic counts. Self-storage is very hyper-local and it's very, it's a very convenience based service. So, People may not rent from you as they drive past, but they see your facility. And then when the time comes, they're like, oh, yeah, I drive past this all the time. I'll go there. There's very much, it it occupies mindshare. And um, good location is something that just with self-storage will just, will withstand the test of time. So we'll look at certain traffic counts. We'll pursue, you know, we'd love to see traffic counts in the 12 to 15,000 minimum range. And then... You know, from a supply and demand perspective, and these are all existing. When you go and you start building new construction, you have to go and have higher rent per square foot in, in the market that you're buying. So, if you're going to be developing new construction, you're going to want fifteen to twenty thousand vehicles per day. The higher, the better. And then you're going to want you know certain market rate per square foot. So, on a market rate per square foot in development, you're going to want probably sixteen per foot minimum. If you're in a market that only supports $12 a foot on your rent, your annualized rent, that's going to be tough to build at a price that makes any sense unless your land basis is, meaning the price you paid for your land is super low. So, Well, I only have a couple more questions for you here then. Like if, if um, have you seen a, a changes or volatility around storage unit rents like we are with multifamily and, and yeah family. storage storage has been on a tear same way that multifamily has and i think a lot of that's inflation driven but i think a lot of that's also driven by the fact that there was so much movement uh people getting out of major metros uh chasing more affordable living costs in secondary and tertiary markets that self-storage captures transition and it doesn't matter whether it's transition because you're moving to a larger house you're moving because somebody died you're moving because somebody got divorced or you're moving to a smaller house because you're losing your house self-storage doesn't care it captures all of that sure and do you like focus on a certain part of the country 
Yeah, so we focus in the Mid-Atlantic and the Eastern Midwest. So Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan. More stable, predictable market. Yeah, I mean, we're not a big boom. And, so here's the thing. We're at the, I mean, I don't know. I don't have crystal ball. It's definitely broken. But uh, we're pretty darn close to the top of a market cycle, if you ask me. The areas that are most prone to booming and busting is they're the coasts. The coasts are the boom and bust markets. And the center of the country tends to be more stable. You have more manufacturing, logistics types of jobs that are there and in demand in every market, but they're not sexy where you're making a ton of money. You just kind of keep going. Sure. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you uh, joining me here to get, uh, today. Again, uh, remind everybody, hfirecapital.com. That's hfirecapital.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. So head over to reimastermind.net and check that out or swipe right on your podcasting app and find those show notes. But before I let you go, Mark, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? No, you did a phenomenal job. Kudos, Jack. Well, I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Mark. I hope you'll consider coming back again sometime. Absolutely. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.